Makers, it's Lily here and congratulations. I have a very unexpected announcement for you. You have actually just won the election. I know you didn't know you were running, but you have. And now you're prime minister and what are you going to do first? So I'm back on today's episode with Dr. Millie Rooney. We ask each other this question among many others as we sort of delve into this idea of the public good in practice and what would it actually look like to have a sense of purpose as a country that went beyond growing GDP or ricocheting from one crisis to the next? What would it look like and how could we put it into practice at the level of being individuals or organizations or even as a nation as a whole? What would be different? I think it's a great conversation to be having as we are on the verge of the election and finding out the results. Um, But it's also something that really can carry us through beyond that. So I would love your feedback or ideas. Feel free to get in touch. The links are in your show notes. Here's my conversation with Millie. delightful Dr. Millie Rooney, and we are going to be picking up a conversation that we started last time on the show, really trying to dig into some deep questions around what drives us as a country, what, why do we do what we do, what are our priorities, what have they been, and what could they be? And so, Millie, you've been kind of talking us through a bit of this research that you've led, um, looking at Um, Australians from really very different circumstances, political views, walks of life about what what do they care about, what do they want to see more of, and really what do they want available to everyone, not just what do they want for their own lives. Is that how you define this idea of like the public good? Because I think it's useful to start with a sense of like, this is what we're talking about here today. What is the public good? Yeah, so the public good is making sure that the things that we collectively decide, so as a community, the things that we decide are important, are available and accessible where and when they're needed, regardless of whether they make anyone a profit. And I think that availability to everyone, no matter the circumstances, and availability regardless of whether there's money to be made off it are really key parts of the public good. Cool. Okay, so we're we're talking to people about you know, these great ideas and how underneath these kinds of things that people are, are coming out with and saying, well, we want to see, you know, and we're going to get into some of this, but we want to see housing, we want to see education, we want to see these kind of somewhat obvious things, right? These really tangible things. And then underneath that, and we talked about this last time, were these three sort of core universal driving needs of like connection, care, contribution. So connecting to each other and to place of caring and being cared for and being able to contribute. And so what's been fun for us is that as we've been presenting this work um, and in all different kinds of groups, people who are like professional policy makers or academics or advocates through to people who are just like engaged citizens, you know, wanting to do their part, not as their day job, but just to kind of do their part to make the world a better place. We've been hearing from people this sense of like, 
what do we do with this? Like, I want to know how to put this into practice. What do I do with it? And we're going, oh shit, we can't give you a 10 point plan necessarily because it's so wildly dependent on who you are, what you care about, what your skills are, what your field of expertise is. And, and yet today, that's exactly what we're going to try to do is dig in and get a little bit more practical about, you know, what, what actually do we want to see and what can people do? Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think, you know, we do get that question all the time and it's a question that kind of excites me and panics me. You know, there's nothing like you've done all this work and then someone's like, okay, great. So now what? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and that point about us all being in different contexts, you know, we talked on the last episode about um, the need for space, you know, connect thing to care, connect and contribute takes space. Um, and implementation takes space and appreciation of, of actual context. And so, while we can't put a 10-point plan of step one for implementing the public good in your life is exactly this, what we can do is say these are the core kind of pillars of public good, these are examples of where it's been put into practice elsewhere, and then you're going to have to trust and give yourself the courage to implement it in your own way. And I, I think, you know, that's it's an interesting thing with the public good. It's, it's a collective thing and it's going to take all of us as individuals acting alone and together to to bring it to life. And so we have to have that courage to know our place within that collective. And I think you're speaking to something really big, which is so often when I listen to say a podcast like this one, um, I notice that often they are segmented very much for different audiences. There's the kind of policy wonk podcast or paper or article that's all about, you know, what is the 10 point plan to, you know, reduce income inequality? How do we fix taxation? How do we, and it's very much the level of kind of stuff that's really exciting if you're a bureaucrat or an expert in that space, but totally inaccessible for everyone else. Or I'll listen to something really brilliant talking about, you know, polarization or inequality or democracy. And then it gets to the, so what can we do about it? And they put it all back on individuals and individual citizens. And they say, well, you've just got to really be kind. You know, I think we've just really got to like take a moment to like check ourselves and our social media habits. And I think far out, the world is not in trouble because people have gotten meaner. You know, like if anything, I think that we are kinder and more aware today than probably any other generation in history around the very many diversities of experience, the information and access that we have today for people to express what is going on for them. We know so much more about what's happening in any given day in any given corner of the world. Like, I don't think we suddenly became jerks. And so it's this challenge of like trying to bridge these two really big levels that change happens on, right? And then there's maybe a middle level of like, organizations or communities. It's not like everything is a choice between your personal action as an individual and passing a law for a country. Um, There are things that we can do in, in other kind of groups and sizes, but just acknowledging that like, yeah, when we talk about change, it, it's happening at different levels at different times for different people. Yeah. And I, I'll never forget watching an Inconvenient Truth, you know, the Al Gore film and be like, oh my gosh, everything is terrible. And then at the very end, there was the list of actions you could take and just feeling totally deflated because it was, you know, buy a keep cup and ride your bike. And they're not unimportant, but, you know, we've talked about this before. It it's heartbreaking. So I'm hoping that in our discussion today, we can at least start to bridge that. And I don't think we're going to claim to have the answers for that, 
but even kind of articulating where those sections are and how they hopefully connect a little bit in the context of the public good will be helpful. Yeah. So let's start at the level of individuals, because I think that's what people can most easily get our heads around. And it's where we feel some agency. What are some things that people can start to do in your view today, right here, right now? And you can talk about, you know, some of the conversations you've been having and research we've been doing that might inform this. But what are some things that we can do as individuals to really start promoting this you know, notion of the greater public good um, in our own world? So for people who've listened to this before, you know, listen to the previous episode, we'll have talked about, you know, the care connection contribution and a bit more detail. It's, it's probably worth having a listen or at least having a look at the report for some of that context. Um, and in the report, we talk about, you know, well, what are the things that you could do um, in terms of language and creating space for public good? So I think people, start, I mean, it's funny, I'm telling you, you're the communications expert, but what I've learned from you and our work is that language is actually really powerful and we all control that. Like I choose the words I use in any context, whether it's talking to the dog walkers down the street or, you know, presenting to an organization, we control our language. And so one of the things that is, is the best thing we can do is start talking about the public good. And in doing that, pushing open the space to think about the public good and to be brave enough to have ideas. So, you know, climate action on climate change is a public good. It is something we all should have access to a safe climate. Um, Housing is a public good. It is something we should all have access to all of the time, regardless of who we are or where we are. So I think as that, like that is a very simple first step because, you know, there are so many different things going on in the world right now. There are so many problems to address. And many of us are, you know, focused down on these little rabbit holes of pieces of work. And that's great. They're important pieces of work. And what we talk about with the public good is how do we stitch those pieces of work together so we're all, we're creating a bigger whole. And I think anyone can be part of that. You know, you you could be, you know, doing your grocery shopping and drop in public good, you know. Like, <laughs> oh, good luck. Can someone call in and tell me how you do that? That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it can be at the dinner table. You you have spheres of influence to push this concept. And maybe you might want to use common good. We think public good works best, but whatever is going to work in your context. Yeah, because we get asked that sometimes, like, oh, public good. I'm not sure about that as a phrase. Like how how do, you know, do people like it? How do people respond to it? And the reason that we like it as a phrase is because it doesn't have a lot of baggage. Um, we discussed this a little bit last time. Like it's kind of boring and that's kind of what makes it workable, right? It doesn't put people off. It doesn't have sort of any particular connotations with like a particular religion or like hippie thing. It's just this idea of like, oh, acting in the public good. And yet it's this subtle counter to this kind of what's good for the economy is good for the people narrative, which has been our dominant underlying why or purpose as a country, our dominant narrative under, you know, for lack of a better term, neoliberalism for so many decades, you know, if the economy is good, the people are good. And it's like just flipping that a little bit and being like actually pursuing what is in the public good should be what drives us. And sure, you know, the economy is part of that, business is part of that, but um, it's not just about sort of the dollar and the bottom line. Um, and I think, you know, also in that we've, we've talked about, you know, just using the ideas of connection, care and contribution and using those words um, that, you know, there are CEOs who are out there talking about these things and, and putting things like value care, you know, uh, into the public conversation a lot more. But it doesn't matter if you're an advocacy CEO or if you're somebody 
in any kind of circumstance, you know, to highlight these things. It's like, these are universal human drivers and we want to be strengthening them in whatever it is that we are doing. You know, if that's my volunteer work at the local PNC for my school, if that's um, making sure that someone can, you know, get in to see a doctor when they want to, if that's making sure that someone in um, a nursing home, you know, also has the capacity to make a cup of tea for themselves or for someone else, you know, if they're able to do that, that, that we all have a need to contribute, you know, we all have a need to care and be cared for and to connect and just using those words, connecting those ideas. Um, again, it's something that kind of stitches all of the things that we care about together in a way that then gives it a sense of cohesion and, and meaning and purpose and not just like a grab bag of issues. And I think you can see that how that then flows on from the individual. So we can all use language as individuals, but then recognizing we all have various spheres of power, like you're talking about it. It might be the PNC, it might be your social group, it might be that you're the CEO of an organization. And so you can talk about those those things, public good, connection, care, and contribution. But then you can also start to layer that up of like, okay, so what would it look like to run a school fundraising event that centered care, connection, and contribution, you know, what would it look like to make sure everybody felt really welcome and connected? What are the pieces of the puzzle that would do that for the different pieces of the community? Uh, What would it look like to have easy pathways for people to contribute? So maybe you've got really busy working parents, but can they still be brought into that? Um, Maybe you've got someone who's very shy, but you've got a place for them. So thinking through, and then of course, you know, take that out to how do I run a billion dollar organization to um, how do I run a country, you know, <laughs> that whatever layer is, how are we making sure that whatever we do includes those things? And, you know, we talk sometimes about how it can be difficult. Sometimes these concepts are seen as a bit sort of soft, you know, oh, that's mm. nice. We yeah, can all yeah, hug yeah. each other. Oh, like, that's sweet. Oh, the women are talking about care again. God bless them. Someone yeah, has to. That's yeah. right. You know, we can, and I think we run the risk of, you know, being like, yeah, well, that's nice ladies. Off you go. Um, but what is really worth saying is like, this is also strategic, not be- just because it is nice, which it is. And I'm like, I am all for things because they are nice, right? Like, why do we exist if not to feel good? You know, I, I don't understand why that is not a good driver for anything. Um, but you know, in the research, we were hearing that people really, really want these things. Like that's what's motivating people. And so if we want anything done, like that's the party we want to invite people to, one where you can connect, care and contribute. Yeah, absolutely. That's people. If that's the why, then let's lean into it. You know, if that's what's driving, if that's what motivates people, why wouldn't we embrace those things? talked about kind of a bit about what we can do as individuals, even if it doesn't feel um, maybe as powerful or tangible as we would like. And we will have some other practical tips for people um, at the end of this conversation. But um, we've, and we've also mentioned, you know, like you can take this through to the level of your organization or the community group that you're involved in, whatever that might look like. Um, but I think, look, we we will have just had an election. Um, so we're either about to have one or have just had one, depending on when you're listening to this. And it is definitely true that there are some things that we can really only 
do at the level of a bigger collective of, you know, a society, a democracy, government. Um, and we think it's really important for the public good. If we're talking about the things that, you know, can be provided to everyone or that everyone should be able to have access to, that does imply a certain role for government beyond just keep the lights on, try to keep us safe, you know, try to keep the economy on track. Um, and so when we've asked people, we've been doing the survey and kind of asking people, well, you know, like blue sky thinking and, you know, under the ideal conditions, like what kinds of policies do you want to see advanced in the next term of government that you think would, would really be about um, promoting the public good in this country? Well, no surprise from our remaker community, um, stronger climate targets are number one. <laughs> um, they want a stronger social safety net. So bigger payments for job seeker, job keeper, all of those weird ones. We got rid of job keeper, didn't we? But, um, you know, better better social safety net for people when they need it. Um, a federal um, independent commission against corruption, you know, really trying to clean up the money and politics situation and get the money out of politics, um, stricter limits on donations and spending. And then, you know, the other three that really sung out from the survey that we did, a First Nations voice to Parliament, which, of course, has been the key ask of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, ending subsidies to fossil fuel organizations, and putting in a massive investment in kind of high-quality, affordable community housing. So those have been the things that um, our community have really come back to us and said, you know, these are the policies that absolutely should be advanced within the next term of government. And I think it just helps to kind of, you know, ground the discussion in a little bit of like, ah, oh, yes, this is what it could look like. Um, but of course, you know, there are lots of things that the public good in action might look like. And, you know, Millie, we've talked um, a little bit before about, you know, four day work weeks and universal basic income and um, paid carers leave or paid uh, volunteer leave to kind of support you to be a citizen or a carer. That, that it is about having the time and the resources um, to sort of do these things, care, connect and contribute that really matters. Is there anything that you want to add to any of this list? Well, I firstly, you talked at the beginning there about blue sky thinking. And I think one of the important things, like one of the reasons why you are particularly interested in getting to that policy level is some of this is not blue sky thinking. Some of this actually already exists in Australia or elsewhere or the, the seeds of it. So I think even just changing that to, you know, what, where is the public good already in action and where can we boost it? And what are the policies that are getting us closer to that? I think that's an important thing to kind of hold on to. Yeah, and people did want to express a lot of appreciation for everything from public health and education to public parks, whether that's your local park or a national park, libraries, um, the volunteer spirit that we have seen so strong in the aftermath of the fires and the floods of communities pulling together and everyone kind of arguing they need more support to vote, like they, they need actual government to get in there and roll up its sleeves as well. It shouldn't just be up to individuals and tinnies to kind of help save their neighbors or rebuild after floods. Um, um, but the spirit of contribution is really alive and well in Australia. Like we are a nation with a high sense of social capital in that respect. Yeah. And then linking that to, you know, how do we, I think if you're not familiar with policy or you haven't grown up around that, it can be a really big leap to go from me as a human, you know, individual to uh, policy. How does that even work? What is policy? How do I influence it? Like, what does that look like? And 
one of the strategies that I find helpful for me is thinking about, well, what what are the good things in my life? Like what are the things that help me feel like I have a quality of life? And I was talking to someone in um, medical profession recently and she was saying that what they were doing in the hospital was taking time to reflect on like what are they valuing? You know, they're so stressed in there right now. They're so overworked and understaffed. And what are the things that is making their life okay? And we were talking about, well, one of the things is having a muffin at morning tea with a colleague. And so that's a tiny thing, right? In the scale of a hospital, the public good, a nurse or a doctor having a muffin seems a little bit disconnected. But then we got talking about, well, what enables that to happen? And why isn't that happening at the moment? And it's because the staffing ratios are crap. So they're not having time in hospitals to have a muffin or even have a drink of water. I I have friends working in hospitals who will not drink all day because of the mask requirements and how busy they are. So what's stopping that? It's the staffing ratios. It's the fact that we don't have funding going into hospitals. It's, you know, so what are the structures that allow that moment of pause for the muffin Um, it's good working conditions. And then you can take that down to patients or across to patients. You know, what does it mean to have good care from a doctor? Well, it means that your doctor actually had a drink, means your doctor had a moment to pause with a muffin, means your doctor has more than, you know, 30 seconds to, to stop with you. So thinking about how our direct experience as uh, recipients of care or a service or givers are affected by policies that shape what we can do. And, One of my favourite examples uh, is in the Netherlands with this, and I'm going to say the name wrong because I don't speak Dutch, um, but it's this group called Bertog, which is this kind of collective of nurses and in-home carers, and they're a very decentralised model. And so basically the nurses were really sick of uh, paperwork and bureaucracy and doing things that weren't their job. And so what they decided to do was to kind of cut the bureaucracy and give nurses so much more local power. So they were able to much more directly contribute to how their care homes were run. um, And they were able to connect much better with each other. And it's become this incredible model. There's low staff turnover, there's low sick leave, people are leaving care early because they're better. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's, you know, it's a, a beautiful example of care for each other Um, connection with people and the job, you know, not just the place, but the job and ability to contribute to the things that really get in the way of them doing their job. So it's like a beautiful example in health um, that is referenced in the new power book, which we can put a link to in the show notes. But I, I love it as a reminder that innovative approaches to delivering the public good exist around the world. Okay, cool. I like that Dutch example. What about Australia? Are there any examples that stand out to you here? I've been thinking about that because, you know, it's, it's all very well to look at examples overseas, but it's much more tangible if we've got it here. And I've also been thinking about examples, you know, in the care space, it feels a little bit easier to wrap connection, care and contribution around how services are delivered. So I was looking for examples in um, the renewable energy space because, As we think about transition, you know, as we've got it now, we've got these power companies, they hold quite a lot of power in both senses of the word, um, you know, the corporate power. And we could transition to a green, clean uh, power source, but would we be connected? Would we have ways to contribute and shape decisions about how renewable energy gets rolled out? Um, Would we be able to build care into, you know, if we build wind farms, are we thoughtful about where they go? Are they, you know, 
all of those kind of questions. So there are a few examples in Australia. There's um, one is the First Nations Clean Energy Network. So that's an Indigenous-led organisation that's looking about, well, how do Indigenous communities take back power over their power um, and enable mob to live and work on country? So it's enabling care for community and for place it's allowing contribution and, and say and control um, and it's allowing connection to to place again and, and to people so I think that's a, it's a relatively new organization but worth checking out um, another similar example is cooperative power so it's a not-for-profit cooperative that again is trying to shift the power of power back to communities and they have a model where um members get to decide where profits go and how the how the kind of organization develops and and about buying power and and saying you know well we want to be buying green power so this is what we're pushing the market to do so i think there's some interesting examples it's good to think of examples in the more techie spaces where we're like oh tech and care hang on i don't like what does how do you do that and and like it's partly it's saying it this is what it looks like um it's about shared control and and care for how these things get rolled out and it's exciting it's much more exciting than being like oh well we'll outsource it to someone who's going to make a lot of money who doesn't really care about us like it's exciting to have that control yeah and you know we'll link to some of those examples in our show notes um we also we've had uh, dr amanda cal of the next economy on the podcast before she's tremendous and she does some fantastic work in regional communities that have been traditionally like fossil fuel dependent for their local economy um, and kind of empowering people to um, look at what is the transition going to look like for us and actually how do we be in control of this process and make sure that it delivers and benefits um, all of us rather than just leaving entire communities behind. So they've got a brand new report out that we can um, link to. People are sort of curious about that kind of thing. I think with this stuff, you know, there are probably millions of examples and, you know, trying to, to pick a few or highlight, you know, the, the objective best ones is almost impossible. Um, it's just an interesting lens to look at challenges from, right? You know, and um, I can talk about the childcare sector because that's something that I've had some direct experience of with my own kids. And, you know, uh, we had this amazing family daycare um, where the educator said to me, you know, I've worked in the commercial for-profit centers and they give you one minute to change a nappy, you know, and those lovely photos that they take of the kids, you know, and I'm not saying this is every for-profit commercial center, but she had worked in a few that had done this. Um, you know, they're really good at marketing. Marketing. And they will, you know, show the beautiful photo of the child, you know, with their finger paints. But, you know, then it's like, okay, next, put that away, do the next thing. Because what they want is the photo for the parents. They don't actually, they're not there for the experience of it because, you know, their business model is um, we just need to get as, you know, as many people crammed into this as possible and, you know, keep the cost down. So you sort of look at, um, Part of the public good, I think, is also being able to recognize like where is a profit motive actually quite a corrosive influence and where do we need to have some guardrails up around that? Because business can and should be a force for good, you know, and we asked people um, in the survey, uh, you know, what do you think the role of business is in contributing to the public good? And people absolutely agree that business can and should be a force for good, but they think that business only works when democracy is in the driver's seat. So if democracy is about the public good and promoting and pursuing and strengthening the public good first and foremost, then business has its role to play. And I think, you know, the other thing just over on that topic that they said that I thought was really interesting was like, 
you know, it's great to have B Corps. It's great to have companies in all kinds of sectors looking at how to improve their social and environmental responsibility, triple bottom line. All of that's fantastic. Bottom line, if business is going to be part of the public good rather than detracting from it, is pay your tax. Like that is the number one thing people want to see business do. And I think that we are so, I know there's been work on this. I know that, you know, there's been bipartisan support for this. There have been global efforts by countries to try to make sure that there is a minimum tax rate that businesses are paying and they can't just kind of country hop looking for the lowest deal. But I think that there hasn't been a lot of creative work to really sell this notion of a patriotic business or a business that you know, is a good citizen, good corporate citizen and cares about the community that it operates in is one that first and foremost doesn't try to get out of the tax that pays for all of the things that we need and love and use. Um, and I would really love to see that kind of creative campaign, actually. Yeah. And I think what we just talked about there, you know, childcare, health, business paying tax, um, renewable energy, you know, all of that can feel like this really random grab bag of like, whoa, we just talked about a bunch of random things, but that's the power of the public good is it shows that each of these sectors or each of these areas can be done in ways that enhance our collective wellness or or don't. And that it is stronger if we start to talk about how do we make them all do that? How do we, how do we insert the public good? How do we insert connection, care and contribution across that. That's what ties us together. I think that's where it becomes really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And so then just to bring it back as we wrap up about, you know, I, w- I want to ask you two things. Uh, first, I want I want to ask you um, kind of if you were prime minister for a day, uh, you know, we were just looking at the, the election and what would you be doing? What would you be trying to do differently? But before we get to that, I did want to say to people, look, if you're still wondering what can I do personally here, if it feels all too big and sticky and amorphous, um, one, and I can tell you from direct experience, do not underestimate the power of a positive letter, message, email, phone call to the person who represents you. Um, so often politicians only hear from lobby groups and so often they only hear complaints. And if they only hear complaints from citizens and the only people who are saying, hey, good job, great, we love your work, are the kind of corporate lobbyists, you know, those are the people that are out there trying to form relationships. And I think that, you know, that's what, that's unfortunately what money buys, right? Is it buys access, which buys you the ability to then form close friendships. So it's not citizens' fault <laughs> necessarily that we don't have the same level of access to our elected representatives. But I definitely know from my, you know, years and years of experience in campaigning, the power of reaching out to the person that represents you and saying, hey, first of all, I just want to say thank you for X, Y, Z, or I really appreciated your work on this thing. And hey, secondly, this is something that I really care about. And I, and I know many other people do too. And I would love to see you take, you know, so often they just don't get that kind of direct personal constituent contact um, in that way. And I think another really sort of deceptively simple, but powerful thing to do is to write letters to your editor. Local papers are really well read. National papers, if you can get into them, you know, are really influential. People read the letters section. And so if you want to help shape public opinion and debate and you don't think that, you know, you're going to get your article written up and submitted to the pages of the press, you can submit a letter to the editor. And it's a really valid um, 
form of kind of public communication. And then on top of that, you know, we all talk about social media and how we can all be putting our thoughts out into some kind of public arena sort of all the time. And some people are more into that or have bigger audiences um, to do that from. But it's true. Like we all really do have a voice and we can use it. And if you want help to kind of craft that, do go to the report because a lot of we have taken a lot of care in the report to talk about how we can speak about this stuff and we've got examples there of how you might use words like public good or enabling infrastructure or connection care contribution. So it is there, it's there, that report is there if you want to talk to your neighbour and it's also there if you want to insert it into your, you know, advocacy work it's a for the nerds out there who like that detail um that resource is there for you yeah definitely you can send the report to your mp and you can you know you can share it in your workplace as well um i and and we were hearing from people who are in very different workplaces talking about how they are using it in the work that they do and it's helping them with a new sense of language and opening up sort of new spaces and new possibilities okay so millie your prime minister congratulations you've thank been you, elected thank you yeah it's wonderful to be yeah. here thank you except it's only for a day i'm very sorry so you just have to pick one important thing that you are going to do to advance the public good what's it going to be oh there were so many things that i would do um but i probably the most no one of the most important things that I would like to see change is a throwing out the old compass of GDP and economic growth as a marker of success and replacing it with the public good. You know, I'm I'm over the quantification. I want the qualification. You know, I want the quality, <laughs> not the quantity. Um, and, and that would then shape how we focused every every other thing that came after that. So that's where I would go. But you know. If I've only got so, a so only for day, I was going to say, is that a bit like the New Zealand well-being budget? Like I remember when that first came out, and people were like, "Oh my god, they've combined well-being and budget in the same sentence! This is incredible! This is a new metric of measuring our success as a nation." You would just apply that concept kind of writ large across government, like stop just focusing on economic growth as your measure of success. Yeah, I mean, I've given myself permission of like position of prime minister and also like magical, powerful changer of culture in the same breath, you know. So I think it's a bit naive to say we just change the measure and everything else falls out from that. You know, it's a whole lot of cultural change, which is partly what we're asking listeners to do. The remaker community is to help us get this language out there. Exactly what you said, Lily. Like write about it, talk about it, send it to your MPs because that will be part of changing what people think to measure and think to kind of the standards we hold ourselves to. So, um, yeah, I'm not prime minister on my own. I need everybody's help to do this. But, you know, if I hand over the prime ministership to you on the next day, Lily, what are you going to do? (laughs) Naturally. All right. So I think I would appoint a minister for getting money out of politics and getting people back in. Now, not because it could be only done by one minister, but I would want like a cabinet level position dedicated to this kind of double edged um, problem of how do we not just, you know, the ICAC, Federal Anti uh, Independent Commission Against Corruption, that's a that's a stick and that can encourage cultural change. But that's that's just the tiniest tip of the iceberg, really. Like what we need to be looking at is um, the kind of overarching like system of how do how do we get money out of our politics? Because I feel like if we fix democracy, if we get the kind of you know the, the settings right, and you know that that shift the culture away from money talks and 
pay-to-play corruption through to actually it's it's what the people need. Like that is the key that unlocks everything else, um, as we have heard before on the podcast with Saffron Zomer um, back in season one talking about democracy. Like this is the key that unlocks every other issue that we care about. And having someone in cabinet who had the responsibility and accountability for really driving that across the government, the money at and the people in, like what does it look like to create more engaging processes for you know, citizens to engage with their government, to have more open and transparent government, to have more inviting, useful, you know, platforms of consultation or decision making um, beyond just voting once every three years. And I feel like we could just get a lot done if we really prioritize those two things. Nice one. We well, you can have it for a day. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's hard because you feel like there's so many. I'm like, and I want a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined. And I want to see more women by, you know, um, absolute demands in every position of representation and so many things. Um, but listen, everyone, thank you so much for, for listening today. I hope that this conversation has sparked some interesting ideas. If it has, please feel free to get in touch with us. Um, we have some interesting stuff kind of being banked up for future episodes to talk to you guys about in terms of where people are coming from, what they care about. So you can leave us a voice message for the show and you can also um, send us an email to podcast at australiaremade.org. And um, we are listening to your ideas all the time and loving them. So thanks so much, everybody. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.